Tonight's passage is in Genesis 6, starting at verse 5, and you can find this on page 8 in your church Bibles. So, Genesis 6, page 8, starting at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every... Sorry... And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous, righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rims in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Thank you so much, Dana. I wonder if Noah ever became bored while he was on the ark. He was there an awfully long time. I wonder if he ever fell out of the habits of prayer while he was on the ark. I wonder if uh, worship was ever a chore to him. I wonder if his willingness to fight sin ever waned. I wonder if he appreciated the significance of what was going on. I mean, on one level, of course he did. Everything that was happening around him was really momentous. But then again, what was happening to him then would become so significant throughout the rest of this greatest story that we're looking at this year. I wonder if he knew Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul use the story of Noah's Ark as a pattern of how God saves his people, an an allegory, an illustration, an explanation of salvation. 
It sets out the very dynamics of salvation, which will later become clear in the gospel of Jesus. So as we study these events, we are delving into the very depths of what salvation is all about. And we find an answer to the question, how does God save his people? I think there are four answers to that question. Firstly, God will save his people by judging. This morning we heard about the fall of humanity. We sinned and all creation was cursed. But even in that darkest chapter of human history, there was a glimmer of light. God gave a warning to the serpent. He said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, that's saying that there are going to be two family trees, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent. And these two family trees will continue the conflict that started in the garden. But eventually, we know that one of Eve's offspring will defeat the serpent, even at great personal cost. One of Eve's offspring will be the snake crusher. And the following chapters from Genesis 3 until what we read today identify those two lines. The offspring of the serpent continue through the line of Adam's son, Cain. His family is just wrapped up with the curse. It begins with Cain murdering his brother Abel. And the seventh descendant in that family line is Lamech. Lamech collects wives and he sings to them about how violent he is, 11 times as violent as his great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather Cain. They are the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of Eve continue through the line of Adam's son, Seth. His family line is wrapped up, not with the curse, but with the hope of promised blessing, the curse reversed. At the start of his family line, people start to call on the name of the Lord again, and Whereas the seventh descendant in that line was Lamech, the seventh descendant in this line is Enoch, who walked with God. And that line continues ten generations, all the way from Adam to Noah. And another ten generations on, that family will lead to Abraham. So, ten generations on from Adam, Noah is the one carrying the promised hope of the snake crusher. The thing is, this promise is under threat by the time we get to chapter 6. Because through Cain's family, the offspring of the serpent are winning the conflict. Um, Have a look at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the same idea is picked up in verse 11 as well, if you can see it there. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. This is uh, an escalation of the wickedness, the evil, the violence that we saw um, that went before. It's worse than Cain murdering Abel. It's worse than Lamech um, murdering uh, and boasting that he was even more murderous. The violence has spread throughout all, all people. 
the enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman uh, of Eve means that Noah, his family, and the hopes of uh, all hopes for the future, they are under threat. If Noah and his family are killed in this violent world, his line isn't going to continue. The serpent will never be crushed. The curse will never be lifted. The promise is under threat. So what's the solution? Wipe out the serpent's offspring. The wickedness of their sin will be rightly judged and they will no longer be a violent threat to the promise. So God says in verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And how will the serpent's offspring be wiped out? God says in verse 17, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. I asked the question at the start, how will God save his people? Here's the first answer. God will save his people by judging. I think we're kind of more used to the idea of God saving his people um, from judgment. And we will see that in the next point. But a consistent theme here and in other places in the Bible is that God's people are saved by his judgment. And the line that leads to Jesus was saved and preserved because God sent the flood. Uh, later on in the greatest story, Israel escaped slavery in Egypt because Pharaoh's army were drowned in the Red Sea. Um, much later on again, the persecuted church in Revelation could keep going exactly because they knew that one day God would defeat their enemies. The Christians in the recently burned down village of Jaranwala will attest to the fact that God's children will never be safe until violent people are no more. God doesn't judge out of malice. He judges in order to save his people. Another judgment is coming. Again, the Lord mourns over the sin of his creation. Sin isn't just breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. And as in the days of Noah, he will save his people by judging. I guess the question is, which of those family lines are you a part of? Are you with the offspring of Eve, or are you with the offspring of the serpent? We need to make sure we're part of the right spiritual family, otherwise that judgment will come for us. How will God save his people? Secondly, by rescuing. So God wants to wipe out the serpent's offspring, but this will not save his people unless there's a way for Eve's offspring to escape. And we know how this story goes, don't we? God tells Noah to build an ark, and he tells him, this is important, exactly how to build it. These aren't the vague pictures that you get when you have to assemble IKEA furniture, where you kind of just have to guess how it's supposed to look. God will, not trust to humanity, God will not trust humanity to come up with our own means of salvation. Instead, he gives very detailed, specific instructions to Noah. You can see that from verse 14 onwards of chapter 6. He specifies the building materials. 
cypress wood and pitch. He specifies the dimensions, 135 meters long, 22 meters wide, 13 meters high, um, sort of a football pitch and then some. He instructs the floor plan, lower, middle, upper decks, a roof with an opening all around. He instructs who's going to be in the ark, Noah, his wife, his sons, uh, their wives, and lots of animals too. The point is that this salvation is entirely, entirely of God's design. And Noah responds by doing everything just as God commands him. That's written twice both in verse 22 of chapter 6 and in verse 5 of chapter 7. This would have meant years of chopping down trees, preparing the wood, slowly building. This would have meant ridicule from all sides. Noah, why, why on earth are you starting a floating zoo? That doesn't seem sensible. But still, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah didn't add anything to God's design. He didn't add an outboard motor to make the ark go faster. He didn't suggest different building materials to make the ark more comfortable. He didn't leave out some of the animals to make the ark seem less crazy to his critics around him. He followed God's design exactly as he was instructed. And then chapter 7, verse 13 We are straying uh, all the way through to chapter 9 this evening. Chapter 7, verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. From the first to the very last, this rescue is God's doing. He gave the instructions and God shut the door. It is God who saves his people by rescuing. And in the same way, our rescue is entirely God's doing. We cannot add to it. We cannot alter it. We cannot make it more culturally appealing. We, like Noah, must simply follow the rescue plan that God has commanded. The blueprints for our salvation predate Noah. The Trinity God decided in eternity that our safe place in the storm would be God himself. As the storm clouds of judgment gather, we take shelter in Jesus Christ. He takes the wind and the waves and the rain of judgment. They all beat down on him and we remain safe, hidden in him. God has given very clear instruction about our rescue. Turn away from your sin. Confess it to God. Believe that Jesus died on a cross to take the judgment for your sin. Bow to the risen Jesus as Lord of the new life that is now yours. You cannot add to that rescue plan with works or religious rituals. You cannot alter that rescue plan with other faiths and philosophies. You cannot find a version of that plan that will become more 
culturally sensitive to the world in which we live, like Noah, do exactly what God has commanded in his rescue plan. God saves his people by rescuing. Thirdly, God saves his people by recreating the world. This is a good one. If you were with us for the evening service last week, you'll have heard about creation in Genesis 1. God created everything out of nothing, but in our time together, we mostly focused on God bringing order out of chaos. You might remember that verse 2 of Genesis 1 goes like this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. A place of disordered chaos, empty, dark, and wet, like a certain English city. It was not a suitable place for human life. But in it, God was already at work. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, preparing the earth to be a place suitable for human life. And in the story of Noah, we return to verse 2 of Genesis 1. We return to that chaos. God starts undoing those six days of creation. Chapter 7, verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The floodwaters rise, even above the mountains. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Verse 23 says that only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Some Christians take these events as a literal, historical account. And although the details seem almost unbelievable, this dramatic decreation, is it really any less likely that God could do that when he was the one, let me put it this way, if God can bring order out of chaos, why shouldn't he be able to bring chaos out of order? He's just undoing what he's already done. Other, so I I have a lot of sympathy for those who take this as literal history. Um, Other Christians think this story is describing a terrible local flood rather than a worldwide event. And they explain the universal language here as kind of a type of exaggeration, hyperbole, to make a point. And still, there are other Christians that believe that this isn't a historical account. Rather, it was written as a reaction to pagan flood myths. In that view, the author was inspired to take these well-known myths and fill them with Christian theology. I find that third one most difficult to, uh, to square with a high view of Scripture. I'll be honest and say I just don't know. I lean towards one of the first two. But what I do know is that this is the undoing of creation and a return to chaos. Everything returns to being empty, dark, and wet. But after 150 days of flood, the six days of creation happen again. Uh, Step one, and for step one to make sense, you need to know that the word for spirit and the word for wind is exactly the same. Step one, just as the spirit was at work over the watery chaos in Genesis 1, so in chapter 8, God sends a wind over the earth and the waters recede. 
next. Just as God separated the waters above from the waters below, in chapter 8, verse 2, the water finally stops falling from the sky. Next, um, just as God separated the waters, allowing for dry ground to appear on day three of creation, so in chapter 8, verse 3 to 5, the waters go down and the tops of the mountains become visible. Um, Then, on day five of creation, and chapter 8, verse 6 to 12, there are birds in the sky again, doves and ravens. Then, on day six of creation, and also chapter 8, verse 17 to 19, animals multiply on the earth. And finally, humanity takes its place on the earth. And just as Genesis 1 talked about being the made in the image of God, So in chapter 9, verse 6, we have a reminder that still humanity bears that same image. And God even repeats the the command to, um, to multiply and subdue the earth in very similar words. The point is this. The six days happen again because God saves his people by recreating the world. In Noah's case, the um, recreation of the world was only partly successful. Yes, the serpent's offspring were wiped out. But unfortunately, Noah and his wife gave birth to another one in that line. The second half of chapter 9, Noah gets drunk. And his son, Ham, behaves in a really perverted, disgraceful manner. And so Noah says to him, cursed be Canaan. And you can read the details if you like. But the point is this. Though God recreated the world, the curse of sin continued. So the final recreation is still ahead of us. The final time where God will save his people by recreating the world is still something that we're waiting for. This world has been broken by sin. This world has been torn by disease, earthquakes, fire, and floods. But one day it will be made completely new. Whatever aspect of the curse you are struggling with today, know that one day it will be no more. God saves his people from our enemies. God saves his people from judgment. And God saves his people from the hardships of this broken world. God saves his people just as he saved Noah by recreating the world. And finally, God saves his people by keeping his promise or his promises. When Noah and his family finally set foot on dry ground, God established a covenant with them. Um, The covenants of the Bible are more than legal agreements. They are promises of relationship, promises of relationship. Flick ahead in your Bibles to chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. God says, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is a promise of relationship between God and everyone and everything that he has made. It's a promise without condition. 
God, God is promising here that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Most of the covenants in the Bible have got a sign that go with them. You might think of sign of circumcision in the Old Testament. You might think of um, baptism or the Lord's Supper, bread and wine. In this covenant, the sign is the rainbow. Verse 13. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Have you ever wondered why it's called a rainbow? Like, why not a rain arch or a rain curve? And that word for bow is literally the bow you're thinking of. It's the same word for the weapon that fires arrows. Glenn Scrivener points out how strange this is. I'm borrowing this point from him. God is promising life. Promising not to destroy the earth again. Promising no more death, life. But the sign of that covenant is an instrument of death. God is promising peace. But the sign of that covenant is an instrument of war. It's bizarre. And yet, think about a rainbow. Which direction is it pointing in? After all the evil in the first chapters of Genesis, we might expect it to be pointing down, curved this way ready to fire an arrow of judgment down to earth. But the war bow points up into the heavens. Yes, there is still evil in the world by the time Noah's story comes to an end. Yes, that evil still demands justice. But the arrow of justice points up towards heaven. Because later on in the story, the, the man of heaven will come to give life even though it means his own death, even though the arrow of justice will pierce his own heart. God saves his people by keeping his promises, even though it means dying in the process. How does God save his people? Even here at the beginning of the Bible, we can see so much of his great plan of salvation. He saves by judging, by rescuing, by recreating the world, by keeping his promises. Actually, the most important question we can ask is not the one that's on the screen. The most important question we can ask is not how will God save his people. The most important question each one of us must ask is how can God save me? How can I be saved? Will you take shelter from the storm of judgment in Jesus Christ? Will you, just like Noah, do everything that God has commanded in his rescue plan? I wonder if Noah ever became bored in the ark. I wonder if he ever fell out of his habit of praying. I wonder if his worship ever wavered or his motivation to fight sin waned. Every day when he got up, 
when he was clearing out the animals, when he was eating with his family, he could look outside and remember what he was saved from. Every day he could inspect the beams and the pitch and remember what had saved him. I'm sure when he did that, all the boredom and lack of thankfulness would soon melt away. Perhaps we should do the same. Let's remind ourselves daily of how God's people have been saved, of how we have been saved. Let's pray. Let's just pause in silence for a moment and think about what we've heard and respond in our own hearts, in our own way to Father God whose arms are open even now. Almighty Father, we confess that so often the the inclinations of our hearts have been evil, wicked, violent, sinful. We acknowledge that we deserve your judgment. We have no excuse. And yet thank you that you have provided a way of rescue, a way of escape. Thank you that this is a salvation that you have achieved from start to finish. Please help us just to follow that plan, not add anything to it, not change it, not alter it, not make it more culturally sensitive. As the clouds of your judgment gather, we take shelter in the cross of Christ. Thank you so much for our Savior. Thank you so much that we are looking forward to a new creation. Thank you so much that you are faithful and you keep your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.